According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are in Philippians chapter 1 this morning. Philippians 1, verse 6. I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it or complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And we've got a lot of things to talk about with respect to persuasion. That's the first part of the verse uh, where it's translated confident. And then perfection in the second part of the verse. And so we got really a tandem of doctrines, a tandem of principles there, the persuasion principle and the perfection principle, both of which I think are vital in the uh, New Testament in biblical Christianity for our stewardship. And so we'll tackle the first of those issues this morning and then Wednesday, or no, uh, Wednesday I want to do a missionary report on Ukraine. So a week from today then, depending on how far we get with uh, persuasion, then uh, we'll be able to move on to perfection. So uh, come back next Sunday for perfection, and uh, that should be uh, motivation for all of us. (laughs) All right, before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessings of assembling together. We thank you for this day, the Lord's Day, Father, in which we get to come together and study to show ourselves approved. We call upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding. We pray for your faithfulness to be manifest in in every application, Father, not just the Word of God that goes forth. It starts there, but also, Father, in our fellowship one to another, our prayer time, our communion service, uh, everything that takes place today. Might it be done uh, for the glory of your Son, for your good pleasure, and under the power of God the Holy Spirit. We thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, as we've been looking at it here, this is uh, verses 3 through 11. He who began a good work will perfect it. And we've been talking about the issues of thanksgiving that have sparked his prayer life. Uh, It says in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And we discuss those, those twin applications there of thanksgiving and remembrance, that they should be the primary prayer practices for our priesthood in Christ. And, and uh, long before we ever get to any petitions or intercessions or requests or anything of that nature, that prayer is more than just simply the, the selfishness of gimme, 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 or the selfishness of I need, I need, I need, I need. All right, Your Father knows you need those things before you even ask. But there is a blessing and a benefit to our thanksgiving, a blessing and a benefit to our remembrances. And in those remembrances, we have the opportunity to celebrate God's plan and God's faithfulness and, uh, and all of this. So I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always offering prayer. And uh, this is where prayer is both a verb and a noun. And that as a verb, the offering of prayer is a priestly function that we are ministering as priests and we are offering up, not bulls and goats or rams or sheep or anything like that. We are offering up these very prayers. And every prayer that we pray becomes a thing, becomes an entity, becomes a substance that we then offer up as a gift to the Father. And that prayer, which is, by the way, uh, something we're going to discuss, why it is that the prayers of our own crafting, the prayers of our own volition, our own 
authorship and, and so forth. Not the memorized prayers, not the rote prayers, not the rituals, but those that we, that we pray ourselves in our own uh, priesthood, in our own growth, in our own experience. Those very prayers are unique. They are unique to us. They are unique to <clears throat> this time and this place and this set of circumstances. And each one goes to the Father's throne of grace and it becomes incense in the heavenly temple. The angels are carrying them in, in these bowls and they're laying them before the altar. And it is uh, an exciting thing to, uh, to think about as we work our way through. Can you tell I'm getting excited for the book of Hebrews coming up? All right. Because Hebrews, and what a tandem to have Philippians and Hebrews together. But uh, Hebrews is the book of our priesthood. It is the Leviticus for the church age. <laughs> you know, it is for our reality. And there's no bulls and goats and blood and all that nasty stuff. We, um, we operate in the heavenly places in Christ. And the, the sacrifices that we offer uh, are just extraordinary. And so I'm excited uh, next hour uh, to introduce uh, what will be uh, transformative here for this congregation. All right. So always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. We discussed the idea that joy is, uh, is an ingredient that gets added in, like a drink offering, like a cup of wine that gets added to the meat or the uh, grain or whatever the other sacrificial material might be. That joy gets added within uh, these other sacrifices. Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Then verse 5, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And that fellowship participation, right? Quinineo, and then the noun quinonia references our fellowship and what it is that we share, what it is we have in common. And that fellowship sharing participation is huge. And this is what Paul kept at the forefront of his thinking. This is what he kept in view. And that's what provided the joy. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day, even until now. And you know, when you think of uh, all the things that motivated Paul's prayer life <laughs> uh, for Corinth, in a huge contrast, there was very little to be joyful over, right? And well, and there was very little that the Corinthians were participating in, in uh, at least as far as 1 Corinthians is concerned, and even through most of 2 Corinthians, there was very little that they were participating in. It's, it's extraordinary that by the time you get to chapters 8 and 9, the church at Corinth is just then starting to get on board with uh, a ministry that is uh, putting the funds together and, and sharing in the, the ministry towards the saints in uh, Jerusalem. But there was very little that they were involved with with hands-on participation. And so uh, Paul did, was not able to add the joy to those prayers the way that he was able to add joy to his prayers on behalf of the Macedonian churches, right? Philippi, Thessalonica, and uh, Berea. And so uh, this is what we're dealing with here. I'm in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And, the, and watching this unfold, watching the progression of time, watching the first day, and that was great, and then seeing it still continue today, seeing it until now, even until now. And that's, that's exciting for Paul because there had been a time, there was a break, there was a time they didn't have the opportunity, they weren't uh, sending the funds the way they had been in the past, that it stopped, all right? 
but then they had been able to resume it again. And that's what sparks the writing of this epistle. And he's thankful that now at last they've revived their concern and that they're once again, they are active in their participation, active in what they're doing. And he's excited about that. And so he's excited not for only the good old days, but also today. Today that has continued. And what's going to happen after today? What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen the day after tomorrow? And what's going to happen moving forward? That's where he takes it then in verse 6. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And maybe that is tomorrow. Maybe that is today. We don't know what day it is the trumpet's going to sound, right? The day of Christ Jesus, by the way, that's the rapture. Don't don't confuse that with the day of the Lord. Don't confuse that with the day of wrath. The day of Christ Jesus is the rapture of the church. The day of Christ Jesus is when the body of Christ is assembled for the first time ever. All right? And we're going to be caught up to the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And that's the first time ever that 20 centuries or 21 centuries of the body of Christ is all going to be assembled at one place at one time. And so is that going to be today? Is that going to be tomorrow? I hope it is. I wake up every morning with that expectation, with that disappointment that it was, uh, it was an alarm clock this morning and not a trumpet that woke me up. And uh, bummer. Okay, well, then I guess here we go. One more day to teach, one more day to serve, one more day to lay up treasure in heaven, one more day to bear at least a little bit of fruit, right? Try to get some kind of gold, silver, and precious stones up there since I know there's so much wood, hand, stubble already. And, and, and yet, with, the, with that disappointment that it was not a trumpet this morning, maybe it'll be a trumpet sometime today before I go to bed tonight, that I have slept my last night on, on planet Earth. That's the, that's the daily expectation. That's living one day at a time for the glory of Jesus Christ. And that has to be in the forefront of our thinking. I think all too often the whole exhortation to endurance misses the point that uh, our, the, the greatest goad you and I have for endurance is the sense that I'm not going to go to bed tonight. <laughs> okay? The trumpet's going to sound before, before the evening, before the sun goes down, before the evening... Uh, you know, bedtime or whatever, that this is our final day. Can you endure one more day? Can you endure today in whatever it is you're dealing with? See, well, that's uh, what we're looking at there. So to uh, advance the slideshow here, let me bring this up. There's probably a fancy way to do this, but I don't know. We'll just do it the unfancy way and easy enough. There will be slides after this one, but for the time being, this is my last prepared slide. And I'm going to spend the whole hour on this slide. I want to talk about our persuasions. I want to talk about the confidence that we have. And the confidence we have because God is at work in and through us to will and to do of His good pleasure. God is the one who persuades us. And we need to be um, receptive to that persuasion. So confident persuasion is a great blessing from the Lord. And uh, what we have here is the verb patho, P-E-I-T-H-O, patho. Uh, the Strong's number for patho is number 3982. Um, it's, uh, it's a little bit disappointing. Well, not disappointing, but it, it, strong, the Strong's numbers are great. It would be neat if someone would come along and expand upon these Strong's numbers to give additional detail, for example, to break down between the active use of the verb and the passive use of the verb. And uh, that also would, I think, be a useful feature. But um, be that as it may, we'll, uh, we'll look at them here today and 
try to spotlight the distinctions between active voice and passive voice as we encounter each one in the text. But there are 52 New Testament uses, and, and uh, between the active use and the passive use, each one is worth looking at, worth seeing how God himself accomplishes this verb and what he expects for us to do in this, in this verb. What should we do in our own persuasion, in persuading others? Then we have uh, an opposite. You, you stick an, an alpha in front of a Greek term and you typically will negate, negate it. It's like putting un, un, in front of, a, uh, of, a, of an English term. Something is either clear or it's unclear. It's, it's um, happy or unhappy, right? Friendly or unfriendly. We can stick un in front of something and we, we negate it. That's what you do in Greek with the alpha. The, the alpha privative here negates what follows. And so... You have patho, and then you have ah patheo. And the idea of uh, typically in the passive voice, not being persuaded, remaining unpersuaded. And whose choice is that? When God himself is persuading you, but you yourself choose to remain unpersuaded. All right? And this is, uh, is an interesting concept as well because it comes into... Um, our humility and, and volition and what we choose to listen to and what we choose not to listen to in that regard. There's 14 uses there as well of apetheo. In the active voice should be studying their connection to, and then here's our old favorite, pistuo, right? Pistuo is our verb to believe. And we were discussing this this morning, right before class started, uh, the application of faith and what it is that we believe in and why we believe. And sometimes how belief is abused by believers who should know better, all right? Born again believers who should know better, who've had teaching, and yet they abuse the word pistuo, they abuse the word belief, taking it places that the Bible doesn't take it, all right? We want to be clear on that because we don't want to abuse what is us, the greatest blessing, the just shall live by faith. We have to walk by faith and not by sight. So if we're going to abuse pistuo, um, we better be careful. At that point, we're not walking by faith anymore uh, because this is the verb to believe. And the application is belief is always in an object. Belief is always in the promises that God, the faithful one, has declared. And since God himself is infinitely faithful, God himself is infinitely pistos, faithful, then I can pistuo everything that God says. I can pistuo everything that God does because it's grounded in his pistos, his faithfulness. All right? And if I am wishing something to be true that God himself has not promised, that's not faith. That's wishful thinking. And sadly, there are believers that delude themselves into a wishful thinking that is not faith because they're trusting in something that God never promised. And then when it doesn't happen, then they get upset. God let them down. Well, wait a minute. God never promised. Why, why, did, you, why did you insist that he had promised something he never promised? See? And so we'll discuss that all. So I think that's useful as well in terms of our walk by faith that, um, that um, we, we are responding to what God has promised, and that's the circumstances of faith. All right. So, um, by the time you start studying faith, you got 241 uses. <laughs> We're not going to look at all of those, all right? The verses on the screen are, are primarily, in fact, they're all 
patheo, uh, patho verses and all patheo verses. Okay? And I highlighted as many as I could that I think will spotlight the connection that they have with faith. We're going to see again and again and again, either in the same verse or the same paragraph or somewhere nearby, we're going to see a link between patho and pastuo, a link between persuasion and belief. And that's huge. I think that's absolutely huge. Because God himself does the persuading. And if he doesn't persuade, we don't believe. None of us can come unless the Father who sent, who sent Jesus draws us, right? That God does a work so that we can respond to his promises. God does a work so that we, when we do believe, it's, we get no credit for it. It's not uh, works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. And so this link between persuasion and faith I think is, is vital. That, um, and I wish more commentaries would, would mention that. I wish more um, theologians would mention the, the, the tandem of patho with pastuo, because I don't see it. I don't see it in the, in the theological literature or in the commentaries, the way stressed, the way that, that I see it myself and the way that I teach it, the way that these verses, I think, spotlight it again and again and again. God never expects us to believe in nothing. He never expects us just to, you know, despite all evidence and everything else, just to have faith. Faith in what? Faith in nothing? Faith in faith? You know, are we going to sing a, a, a Mary Poppins song next? Or a, a, a I'm sorry, uh, uh, Julie Andrews, I had the right actress, I just had the wrong movie. Sound of Music, right? I have confidence in confidence alone. Really? What's that? I want to have confidence in God. Because God is the ultimate source of all of this. God is the eternal faithful one. And when He is the one persuading, when I let Him persuade me, then I can have all the confidence in the world because it's not my confidence in confidence alone, <laughs> okay? Or confidence in me, which I think is how she ends that song. And that's, that's to me, the most tragic idolatry on planet Earth is <laughs> confidence in me. Oh, my. All right, so what are we talking about here? And, and this is going to be a review, by the way. You'll spot Galatians 5, verse 7 and verse 10 is in this list. And I recall stressing this when we were in Galatians chapter 5, that there is a persuasion at work as this happens. But let's start with Luke 16, and then we'll go to John, and then we'll see how far we get through this slide today. And as I said, we'll handle uh, uh, perfection next week. Luke 16, verses 29 through uh, 31. And um, to me it's interesting when you think Luke 16 and you get these parables, and, and I don't call the rich man and Lazarus a parable. Um, parables don't tend to have names. Here we have a specific name, Lazarus. And I think this is a narrative. This is a description of something that literally happened. And Jesus records it here. So, um, and we know the background on this. The rich man uh, had everything great in his life and Lazarus had everything terrible in his life and they both died. And uh, there you have it. And so when you read these early verses, right? 19 through 22, <laughs> they couldn't be more opposite. And, you, and you know, you're, you're reading the story and you, you want to put yourself in a character. Well, which one do you put yourself into? Obviously, you don't want to be the, 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 have the terrible life here. A poor man laid at his gate, covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even dogs were coming and licking his sores, 
You know, who wants, to, who wants that for a life? Okay? But the rich man, man, he had everything going for him. Habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. Wow. So there he is. Lifestyles of the rich and famous, and that's, that's him. Well, they both died, and uh, he was carried away. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. I love that description. Okay? Uh, the rich man died and was buried. <laughs> okay? And I mean, it is just blunt and brutal, and, and what a contrast. Okay? Um, obviously, Lazarus' corpse was also buried, but the point being made there is to contrast the, the estate of the righteous with the wicked. And uh, the, the poor man was, I mean, the rich man was also carried away. He was just carried away to Hades, to torments. So in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Now, if you came face to face with Abraham tomorrow, would you know who he was? You know, I never met him. He was around 4,000 years ago. I'm not that old, and I've, I've never met him, right? None of us have. But if you think about it, this is this, to me, this is remarkable, the soul identification that happens when we are separated from this physical life. And I think this physical life hides a lot of things. I think this physical existence um, masks a lot of things. But here they are soul to soul, and he knows immediately who Abraham is. Abraham knows immediately who he is. You ever think about this? And so, um, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Why does he think Lazarus is suited for that kind of duty? <laughs> you know, what is he, your slave now? What is he, your, your minion? He's got nothing else better to do. Lazarus is a rewarded believer, and, and uh, I think he's got better things to do than just uh, dip water on your tongue. But, you know, when you're carnally minded, when you're not saved... Uh, when all you do is view people as what value they have for you or, or what you can get out of them or things of that nature, uh, that's how you think. And Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things. How does Abraham know that? Okay, Again, they lived thousands of years apart. They never met each other on planet earth. And yet with one glance, Abraham has the whole life story. He knows everything. You ever consider that? I, I puzzle over this for hours and hours and hours. This, this to me is, is, there's more that is not said, but it's, it's, it's certainly implied in everything here that is said. With one look, he knows about his life. During your life, you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. It's extraordinary to me. that with one glance, like I say, on this earth, so much of a physical existence masks other things. And, uh, you know, if you want to get to know somebody and you want to get to know their soul, that takes a while, okay? And typically it happens in marriage in, in, the, in, in the most intimate of ways. And you get to know the person's soul over decades of, of marriage and what have you. And how long does it take to truly know that person's soul? How long does it take? And in some cases, it doesn't take long and you realize, wow, this person's really beat up. This person's hurt. This person's damaged. And you can identify some soul damage shorter maybe than other times. But what I'm saying is Abraham knew all of that at a glance. 
And, and it's extraordinary to me the, the soul-to-soul recognition and the soul-to-soul capacity that we're going to have after physical life is done. Then he says, besides all this, so you're in your estate, we're in our estate, what are you going to do now? Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able. And that used, I used to laugh at that. To me, that was the dumbest thing on earth. Right? Like who would cross from paradise to torments? Right? What kind of idiot would do that? What kind of, what kind of moron? Who, who possibly would? And then I grew up a little bit and I started thinking, well, wait a minute. Hmm. There are believers who express that they wouldn't do such a thing. Paul said he would count himself accursed if he could save his people. All right? Jesus did such a thing. Jesus laid down his life. Jesus accepted spiritual death so we could have eternal life. Who else would cross that gulf if they could become a kinsman redeemer and somehow have ministry to the folks in torments? Well, believers with more love than I have, obviously, or I had when I first had that thought that what kind of a moron would cross that gulf. Okay? And then no one can cross from there to here. There's no second chances. There's no purgatory. You don't get a do-over and a chance to somehow escape out of torments and go to paradise after a, a period of time. All right. So he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. So if he can't come over here to torments, you can resurrect him and send him back to earth. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And what this is coming down to is this issue of patho-persuasion. All right? This whole episode is, setting, is being set up in order to teach the doctrine that comes in verse 31. <laughs> okay? Everything is leading to that conclusion. That even if someone rises from the dead... But before we get there, what's this idea here? Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. In other words, doctrine is sufficient. The Word of God contains all things pertaining to life and godliness. If you need to add something to Scripture, you got the wrong approach. All right? Scripture is sufficient for everything. So they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And you said, no. Father Abraham, okay, are you kidding me? The Bible's the last thing my brothers will pay attention to, <laughs> right? He knows his brothers. He knows what his life was like. And, uh, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. You'd like to think so, wouldn't you? But it's not the case. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. And this is, uh, I think, it's, uh, it's testimony to what God does in his persuasion, what God does in reaching out, and how hardness of heart will not be persuaded no matter what. It's an interesting uh, background on this. So, um, we have it here. And this, uh, 
This is a a very well-known text, a very well-known passage. It's a great way to start in a study on patho, on a study on persuasion, a recognition that, you know, you can can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink, right? Or as, as Comfort says, you can lead an atheist to evidence, but you can't make him think, okay? That is so true. And no matter how persuasive you are, if the other person will not be persuaded, then... It is what it is, okay? And God honors that. God honors our thinking. He honors our volition, our choices. All right. And so uh, we see the things here. It, to me, it's extraordinary. Why, why was there a, a, an additional resurrection uh, in Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew was it 27 uh, when, when Christ was resurrected? Why was it that this great earthquake opened those tombs and many who had been asleep came out and appeared in Jerusalem? Why was Jesus not the only one resurrected that weekend? Why were there additional people resurrected? What kind of a witness was was God giving here? And how hardened were their hearts that they rejected that? It's interesting to me. All right, so that's the Luke uh, 16 passage. Let's look at John 3, 36. Another very uh, extraordinary text here that, that pairs these things together so well. Specifically with pastuo and specifically with a gospel response or lack of response. And uh, coming as it comes here at the, again, it's the conclusion, right? You've got a long section with all this doctrine and it's leading up to a conclusion. And uh, in all of this. All right, so we got John 3 and verse 16 and verse 18 and all of these uh, uh, references to uh, the gospel and to uh, the provision of Christ and the provision of eternal life on the basis of faith. And um, the testimony that then comes in verses 31 and following, he who comes from above is above all, he who is from of the earth is from the earth, speaks of the earth, he who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. We're going to get this expanded in the book of Hebrews. Because God spoke to the fathers long ago in many portions in many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. And the great, uh, the, the ultimate revelation of the Father is in the Son, and the ultimate message is Jesus Christ. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. And uh, here, here he comes, and here comes his testimony. And yet no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. Well, now, wait a minute, I thought nobody receives his testimony. But he who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. Okay, oh, this is beautiful, I love this. Um, for he whom God has sent speaks his uh, words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure, And the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. All right? And this is our verb, pistuo. He who believes has eternal life. And this is the verb that we had in verse 16. Whosoever believes shall not perish but have eternal life. This is our verb from verse 18. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So we have believe, 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 believe. Okay? Now here in verse 36 is our last use of believe 
And the contrast is apatheo. The contrast is he who is not persuaded. So he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not, and it's translated here, he who does not obey the Son. This is apatheo. Okay? And, uh, and rather than translating it as a not with kind of a, a passive approach, let's just leave it as an active approach. Everyone who actively is unpersuaded. Everyone who actively un, uh, demand, uh, everyone who actively rejects the persuasion will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Okay? And so we'll discuss this, because we'll see obedience in some of these other verses as well. Uh, and, and to me, it's, it's a beautiful principle for obedience. Some people don't like obedience. Okay? Well, <laughs> sinners, okay, don't like obedience. But beyond that, um, the, the benefit of obedience is recognizing, okay, we got hupakuo for obey, but we also have petheo, right? Apetheo in these terms. More often than not, the idea of obedience centers on this persuasion. Again, we're going to see it in Hebrews, Hebrews 13. In fact, on my slides, I won't get ahead of myself. But church members are told to obey their church leaders. And the verb that's used there is petheo. The verb that's used there is the verb that says, be persuaded. Be persuaded. Let the Word of God persuade you as your leaders are faithfully teaching doctrine. Be persuaded. And we'll discuss that also. All right. So he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not pay that, he who ah pay that, he who does not allow himself to be persuaded by the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And the linking of these verbs is, is unmistakable. That until you are persuaded, you will never believe. And if you don't allow yourself to ever be persuaded, then you will never believe. Because in order to believe, you're placing your faith in an object. In order to believe in Christ, you have to be persuaded that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father but by Him. You have to be persuaded that you're a sinner. You have to be persuaded that you need salvation. And in most of these cases, the uh, unbelievers that are hardened, unbelievers that are rejecting the gospel, they're rejecting the persuasion that leads to the gospel is what they're rejecting. And they're saying, no, I'm, I'm a good person. No, I don't need a Savior. No, there isn't even a God anyway. No, this life is all there is. And they're rejecting every persuasion as to God and His existence and our need of Him. As to our sinfulness and our need of redemption. And they're rejecting every persuasion there. And so clearly, they're not going to believe because they will not be persuaded. So that's John uh, 3. In verse 36. How about Acts 14? Acts 14. Well, this is uh, fortuitous. On Friday, I took part in a, a conference call. Robbie Dean hosts a go-to-meeting thing. And much of this, this, this time, there were 17 pastors all over the country that were all together in this go-to-meeting thing. And well, uh, Acts 14 is the passage we were looking at. And uh, Paul's message here on the missionary journey and the, the uh, function of, of uh, creationism in uh, apologetics and, uh, and different things there. All right, Acts 14. In Iconium, verse 1, 
In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews. This is Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. And they spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved, you see that? See, this is not just simply some kind of a passive, well, I'll think about it, or well, you know. Uh, I think all too often we approach evangelism as, well, okay, they haven't believed yet, but maybe it's just a, a suspended judgment kind of a thing, or maybe it's just kind of a neutral. No, if it's not an acceptance, what is it? It's a rejection. It is apistuo, or apistao, okay? Belief and disbelief. The Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. And uh, you might imagine in the early church as these uh, uh, synagogues were happy to have Gentiles around, were happy to have Gentile proselytes that would come and, and would take part in their synagogue services and, and, uh, and aspects there. Well, now here, come, here comes biblical Christianity and they're starting to attract Gentiles to their own groups. That becomes a problem. And then you'll notice um, other conflict and other things that happen here in this chapter. Get down to verse 19. And they're going to... There's a certain... uh, uh, To me, it's curious. Um, If you can't can't persuade with your words... (laughs) There's another form of argumentation where you can turn to mob violence, (laughs) okay? You can win an argument that way. And so uh, they end up tracking them down here in verse 19. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having won over the crowds. It's our verb, okay? Having won over the crowds uh, or persuaded the crowds. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. So how do you win over a crowd? Is it with logic and reason and scripture? Or are you just whipping up a mob in a frenzy? You can win over a crowd that way too. All right, so that's interesting to me. Chapter 17, verses 2 through 4. More uh, persuasion taking place. And in some respects, the, the first century of the church was unique and the role of the apostles was, uh, was, was interesting in that they have a gospel to go and proclaim. They have a great commission to exercise. They have uh, you know, uh, an assignment before them, uh, not only a planet full of unbelievers, but considerable number of Old Testament believers that need to be adjusted to a New Testament reality. Old Testament believers that need to be notified that the Christ they believed in that was coming someday did come, and then he died, and then he rose again, all right? And so the the ministry they had to reach out to Old Testament believers to find God-fearing Jews and God-fearing Greeks all over the Roman world, living in synagogues and and attending synagogues, and and the apostles get to show up and say, hey, guess what? The Messiah you've been waiting for? Stop waiting, okay? He came. And, uh, well, you need to start waiting again because he's coming again. But they've got to get adjusted to a church age mentality. They've got to occupy, they've got to identify with the burial and death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
That's why baptism is so stressed. That's why the laying on of hands by the apostles is so stressed. We're not talking about Billy Graham evangelism and getting unbelievers saved. We're talking about Old Testament believers that have to identify with the new realities of the church age. And so this happens again and again and again. So Acts 17, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, this is now the second missionary journey. It's no longer Paul and Barnabas, now it's Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. And this is uh, the first preaching of the gospel after leaving Philippi. So when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Remember Philippi didn't have a synagogue? But in Thessalonica there was. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And here we find the actual tactics Paul employed in his persuasion. It includes logic includes reason, includes a written text, okay? And that's useful for some people, not useful for others. <laughs> All right. Explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Explaining and giving evidence. Again, that matters to some people. And if you encounter somebody that has a reverence for the text, that has a fear of the Lord and a reverence for what the Scripture says, and then you show them what the Scripture says, and you say, deal with it, <laughs> then they've got to go home and deal with it, right? They've got to go home and either sleep well or not sleep well. They've got to go home and answer, okay? And I love that. I employ this tactic a lot because it saves me a ton of time, and I quit preaching at a brick wall and quit whatever. And I say, all right, well, here's what this Scripture says. This is my conviction, and you think this is what it says, but it's not what it says. So, you know, either keep lying to yourself or deal with it. Come humbly before the Father and say, Father, your word says this. All right? And, and you know, until you're going to be persuaded by the word of God, what am I going to do? Okay? You've got to let the word of God do its work. Let the Holy Spirit do its work. It's not a debate. Okay? We use similar methodology. Yeah, we give evidence. Yeah, we explain things. Sure, we're going we're gonna, to... Uh, but it's not a debate. It's just a presentation of the evidence and let the Word of God do its work. It's the Holy Spirit who does the convicting. The Holy Spirit does the persuading. The Father draws, the Son draws, the Holy Spirit convicts. Let it work. Because it's a whole lot better than, <laughs> than we are in any of this stuff, Right? John Eichmann told me that years and years ago. I'll never forget. He said, you know, if I, if I talk you into something, you know, a, a theological view, okay? If I talk you into something, then, you know, somebody later is going to come along smarter than me and talk you out of it. So don't let me talk you into anything. Let the Scripture come alive. Let the Holy Spirit convict you on these things. And, uh, and I agree. I totally agree. So, um, he's for three Sabbaths, he's reasoning with them from the Scriptures. And, and if you find someone that's reasonable, then, uh, then you can do such a thing. <laughs> okay? Explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And if it's right there in the Scriptures, then show it to him. Say, what are we going to do with this? Okay? Isaiah 53, what are you going to do with this? Here's a suffering servant. Here's a lamb that goes as silent before it shears. What are you going to do with this? Okay? And let the Scriptures come alive. And that's what Jesus was doing. 
That's what he was doing in the Gospels. They were, uh, even his own disciples were confused because he's talking about dying and, and going to his father. And they said, well, we heard that when Christ comes, he's going to remain forever, right? And some other Pharisees were saying, we believe that Christ is going to stay forever. Who is this son of man? And so, you know, there are legitimate questions to ask, but the scriptures answer all those questions. So just take it to the scriptures. And so... Um, giving this evidence, and that he had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and then saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And then the neat thing is to be able to put a name to everything that they have in the Old Testament, all they got to do is take that whole body of doctrine and then plug in the name Jesus of Nazareth. And there it is. This is what Paul did on the Damascus Road. He said, who are you, Lord? He needed a name to plug into everything he knew about Messiah from the Old Testament. He said, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Okay? And then he's able to take that name and plug it into his Old Testament theology. He spent three days praying about it until Ananias shows up. Okay? It's interesting. And so some of them, verse 3, were persuaded. You see that? Some of them were persuaded. Now, they already have eternal life. They're Old Testament believers. But now, being persuaded, they don't have to believe a second time to get saved a second time. But they are now going to cross into the body of Christ. And so some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, okay, becoming jealous well, guess what? <laughs> you, see, you see an obstacle to persuasion? Okay? And jealousy is not going to allow the persuasion. Any mental attitude sin is going to hinder persuasion. Becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace. <laughs> Always handy. You know, they're not gainfully employed, so yeah, go grab a mob. And uh, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, attacking the house of Jason. They were seeking to bring him out to the people. And when they did not find them, see, there's a, you gotta, you gotta be, you gotta have discernment, right? Shrewd as serpents need harmless as doves. We gotta know. And when it comes time to go underground, are we ready to do that? Are we ready to have that kind of uh, wisdom? So then they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. So obviously, no persuasions happening there. <laughs> okay? Then in chapter 18 and verse 4. Now he's in Corinth. And uh, now his whole team is scattered. Luke is gone and left him behind in, in Philippi. And Timothy they sent back to Thessalonica. And, and uh, Silas is obviously in Berea because he's absent in Athens. He's absent in Corinth. He's in Corinth alone. That's where he meets Priscilla and Aquila stays and works with them for their tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And so more patho, more persuasion. So there we have it. All right. Then Silas and Timothy come down from Macedonia. Paul began devoting himself completely to the word. 
Doesn't have to make tents anymore. Why? Because they show up with a huge gift from Philippi. Remember? The first preaching after leaving Macedonia? No church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. And here they come and they're delivering it. And uh, now Paul has, can leave behind his tent making and devote himself completely to the word. But when they resisted and blasphemed, yeah, there you go. If they're not going to listen, they're not going to listen. We stay faithful. Chapter 19, verse 8 and verse 9. This is Ephesus now. He entered the synagogue and continued speaking boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, notice, uh, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this took place for two years that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And this is that great Ephesus ministry that we were studying at the beginning of this in the Luke omission uh, study that we did. Um, a lot happened in those two years that Luke doesn't write about. But there you have it. Persuasion. Chapter 26 and verse 28. More persuasion. And we see these examples and we start to wonder, well, what kind of persuasion should we be involved in? Are these uh, primarily unregenerate unbelievers that he's persuading? Or are these Jews that he's trying to persuade? Are these Old Testament God-fearers he's trying to persuade? Who is he trying to persuade primarily? Okay, and who are we supposed to be persuading primarily? Acts 26, 28. <laughs> I love, this is hilarious. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. <laughs> okay, wow, don't want that to happen, right? But think about those doors that got opened because Paul had so many trials, because he had to stand before so many judges and so many uh, times he had to repeat himself and repeat himself. And every time he did, he took it as a fresh opportunity. And so here's, uh, here's Agrippa on the verge of this. And... Um, but you'll see, same thing here. Um, let me back up just a bit. This, this is a powerful chapter. Uh, in verse 24, Paul was saying this in his defense, and Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Okay, You've been in the study a little bit too much, Paul. Get out, get some fresh air. Join us here in the real world. And Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. And there's most excellent Festus. And it's curious to me when he uses such words. And who is the most excellent Theophilus that's uh, being addressed here? Um, For the king knows about these matters. I speak to him also with confidence since I am persuaded. See that? I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. And King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. And Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time, you'll persuade me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short time or a long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. See? And, you know, it's, it's interesting. The, um, you got, we got long-term targets. I got a fellow now and he's 
kind of cold and doesn't really care. And I give him the gospel several times, and so, you know, I'm not going to beat him up with it or whatever, but occasionally, when I, I'll see him tomorrow night, I'll say, hey, uh, you got saved yet? <laughs> oh, okay, I'll keep praying for you then. And just let it go, you know, friendly reminder, praying for you. Someday maybe he'll want to talk about it. And so then the king stood up, and the governor, and Bernice, hey, there's Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and uh, when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, this man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. You know, he's far too rational. He's far too logical. He's, he's, all he's doing is debating the scriptures. Why, why is everybody so mad at him? Uh, Agrippa told Festus, he said, this man might have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. <laughs> he says, now we're kind of stuck. He appealed to Caesar. We've got we to gotta ship him off to Rome. Otherwise, we could just let him walk right now. He's, he's not guilty of anything. It's a neat testimony there. But it shows you, again, Paul is, is all about the Scriptures and persuading. And I appreciate that. Finally then, chapter 28, verses 23 and 24. More persuasion here. If he gets to Rome here in chapter 28, and uh, <laughs> they... Uh, they report in, and the problem is, is uh, they don't know anything about him. They say, well, we don't know why you're here. We haven't received any uh, letters or anything. Verse 21, they said to him, we have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. So uh, this is probably going to be a real short trial because um, we don't have any paperwork, okay? We don't know what you're charged with. We don't know how to, how to rule. There's no evidence. There's no witnesses, no prosecution. Why are you here? <laughs> okay. But as long as you're here, and until your paperwork shows up, can you teach us some things? We've, we've heard some stories. We, um, we desire to hear from you what your views are. For concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. And for the first century, really for the first two centuries even, uh, biblical Christianity was not viewed as something different or outside of the, the out of Judaism. It was just simply viewed as a a, a branch of Judaism, as as a, just kind of a group within the overall people that feared the the God of Abraham, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not until later, when I think the hardened Jews really kept insisting, "No, they're not us. They're not us. They're not us." And uh, and as more and more Gentiles started to come into the body of Christ. I think then it was identified that the body of Christ was a new creation. So what are your views concerning this sect? It is known to us, it is spoken against everyone. What do you think about this? I've heard some terrible things. <laughs> and Paul says, well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. You know, you ask somebody like the Apostle Paul, what do you think? You're going to get an answer. And so... Uh, <clears throat> When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. And look what he's doing. He's taking it back to the scriptures. He's showing them from the scriptures. He says, look, Messiah is going to suffer. Messiah is going to die. Messiah is going to rise again, right? Because it's from the scriptures, according to the scriptures. 
And so he's basically using 1 Corinthians 15 in his, in his preaching. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And He's giving the evidence, He's giving the Scriptures. And, and when, you, when you explain all of Christology from the Old Testament, all of the Messianic hope, and then you testify to what Jesus did, well, who else could fulfill? You know, there's no one else who could fulfill all that. There is one and only fulfillment for all of that, and that's Jesus of Nazareth. This Jesus is the Christ. You can come to no other conclusion. And some were being persuaded, it says in verse 24, by the things spoken, but others, notice, would not believe. Would not believe. See that? Not could not, would not. Would not believe. Again, there's a tandem between patho and pistuo. There's a tandem here in concept between the persuasion and the faith. Being persuaded and placing your faith in that which you have been persuaded of. And they would not believe. And so they, when they could not agree with one another, they began leaving. After Paul had spoken one parting word, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers and testifies to what Isaiah said as to their blindness. All right. So those are the persuasions there. Um, we have Paul's epistles in Romans, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, a lot in Philippians. This uh, Philippians 1.6 is only the first of, I think, six times, uh, five times that patho occurs. So one week from today, we'll come back to this. We'll uh, finish this slide. We'll work our way through uh, Paul's epistles on persuasion because I think it's useful. I think it's very useful to see these and to see that tandem and to start thinking in our own life. And asking God, what is it today? Father, I just sat here for an hour under teaching. What is it today I'm supposed to be persuaded of? What is it you're persuading me of? Are you persuading me that persuasion's important? <laughs> okay? And uh, my, my pastor sure seems persuaded. Why am I not persuaded yet? What, what do I need to see about this? All right? And ask him to persuade you. That's what he does. That's what his word does. All right, we'll see more of that as we work our way through. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this time this morning. Pray, Father, I don't know what's in the air, but whatever it is, um, give me voice for one more hour here this morning and two more sessions tonight. Be faithful, be powerful, Father. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.